so I know that some of you are very thoughtful and you don't want to bother us. Uh, your prayers are always welcomed. And um, I just want to let you know that I love you. Okay? And I'm excited about getting the word today. Um, it's been a hard week to study. I've been very busy. Um, but we're going we're gonna to look at the beginning of Romans chapter 2. So go ahead and turn there. Okay, Romans chapter 2. And I need you guys to be really awake. This is kind of our off week. A lot of people are serving elsewhere in, in, the, in the body. And so your energy is going to have to make up for the, the lack of numbers this morning. So uh, help me out. Uh, we've got 40 minutes to tear this, this passage apart and see what it has for us. Um, and yes, we are talking about hypocrisy. So that sucks for you, doesn't it? <laughs> You're about to get found out real quick. So you might be prayerful about that as we get started. So Romans chapter 2, let's begin by looking at the very first verse of Romans. By the way, I also have Lisa at West people here this morning. Woo! I just wanted to do that to you. Um, it's good that you're here. Glad. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Are you guys there? Therefore, okay, now, we can't go any further, can we? Why? Okay, the word therefore, this is, very, this is basic 101 stuff. That all of us need to learn. But when we start a passage, this is how people get real messed up. And, 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 they, and they negate the context of what God's saying. Is they see the word, therefore, and they don't ask themselves this very simple question. What is it therefore, right? Yeah, what is it therefore? The word therefore means because. And we can't move forward in the passage if we don't first go back and see what it was that we were talking about that's going to inform the next section. Right? So let's just briefly go back to Romans chapter 1 and let's talk about what it is that Paul was saying to us. Now remember this letter is to the church in Rome, which is a newly established group of, indiv- uh, of believers. They're meeting in, uh, in homes throughout Rome, uh, the, the capital of the world, right? Rome is this crazy place where it's like the largest metropolis in the world. It's like New York City. And it's a worldly place. It's a wicked place. Um, and it's a place where Gentiles and Jews... Uh, that have come to know Jesus Christ, are learning to figure out what it means to worship God together. Right? Because there is some discrepancy in terms of the culture, isn't there? The Gentiles are a people group that came out of idolatry, that have a, a heritage of wickedness, a heritage of refusing the revelation of God. And for many, 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 many generations, this is a people who haven't known God. Now, on the flip side of that, the Jewish people are a people that have been close to God. They've known him in worship. They've recognized who he was. They acknowledged his words. And yet, uh, there's a lot of hypocrisy there, hasn't there been? There's a lot of religiosity, a lot of talking about God, but not necessarily worshiping him. And even in, in, in the midst of both of those people groups, the Christ, the Messiah, came and was crucified. And through that crucifixion and through his resurrection... People have come to know Jesus, and yet you've got these two cultures, these two religious backgrounds, these two different groups of people who are learning what it means to to worship God together in Rome. It's a pretty interesting problem, isn't it? And and throughout the remainder of this book, we're going to investigate what that means, but but that's just some context. Let's look at uh, verse 16 of chapter 1. This is Paul setting a theme for really the entire book, the entire letter to the Romans. Let's look at that. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So from the very beginning, Paul reveals to us the significance of this letter. 
And the significance is this. The gospel is the power to save us. The gospel is the power to save us. And, and, and so when we talk about the gospel, let's be very clear this morning. Because there might be some people in here who don't know Jesus Christ. I want to make this very clear. When we talk about the, cost, the gospel, we are talking about the fact that God sent his only son to this world. And the good news is this, that God didn't do that in vain. It wasn't some sort of weird experiment that God was doing. He took his very personage, the thing that he loved the most, and he sent it to this world to live perfectly amongst us. And at the end of Christ's life, he was lifted up on a cross and he died the most gruesome death. And he was buried in a grave and his blood was shed to cleanse us of our, of our sins. And he defeated death the day that he rose again. And some of you might be familiar with that story. But that's not just a story. It is the power to save your very soul. That story is the power that will set you free. It's not just some folk tale. It's not just some good old-fashioned thing that God did. It is contemporaneously, it is in this very moment, the power for your salvation. And that is the theme of the entire book of Romans. That's what it's about. But see, it's not just that. It's not, you know, Paul doesn't leave us with that. This is 16 chapters of him revealing many, many things to us. And in this very first chapter, he says some important things that we need to capture before we can move forward. He doesn't just tell us that the gospel is the power to salvation, but he tells us what the gospel is and what it saves us from and what we are saved unto. And he gives us insight into his faithfulness, God's faithfulness to pursue every person in this world. We learn a lot about who God is from this very first chapter. In verse 17, jump down, we see that the gospel itself makes God righteous. Because he sent Jesus to earth, and because he was faithful to deliver us, that in and of itself characterizes God as a righteous being, doesn't it? That his faithfulness through the sacrifice of Christ uh, uh, makes God righteous, meaning he's virtuous, he's holy. What's it say? For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so what we find is that because God is virtuous, because he is faithful, he's the only true standard. Did you catch that? He is the only real standard for our lives. He's the only one worth us comparing ourselves to. And because of that, he is entitled to preside as judge over all of mankind. Okay, so let's put it like this. So we are wicked, aren't we? Right? We're sinners, right? And, and because we're sinners and God is perfect and God is righteous, do we deserve to stand in his presence? In other words, do we deserve heaven? Do we, do, we, do we deserve to be and to live with God for eternity? We don't deserve that, right? We are separated through our sin. But because of his righteousness and because of his faithfulness and his invitation into a relationship with him, he has made a way for us to know him. And because of that, we are accountable to him. Because of his righteousness and his faithful and his virtue and his goodness and his holiness, we are accountable to that kind of God. And he, he has the ability to preside over us as judge. He has the ability to stand over us and look into our lives and hold us accountable to what he wants us to be. You don't get to be you. You don't get to do what you want to do. 
You don't get to live how you want. I'm sorry to break the news to you. Okay? But we are accountable to the one true and righteous and holy God to live the way that He commands us to live. He is our standard. And if we look at verse 18, we find that God is a God of judgment, that He isn't passive, that He's just not winking at our sin. He's not, he's not like, oh, well, that was cute. They messed up. You know, um, I've, got, I've got two kids, right? One's five and one's three. Now, my daughter recently was potty trained. And in the beginning, I was willing to put up with a little bit of poopy pants. Like, when you're being potty trained, okay, you, you messed up. You pooped your pants again, right? Okay, you peed all over the floor. That's cute. Let's fix that. Let's get it in order. Over time, though, I grow very weary with piss on the floor. Right? Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Piss is a Bible term, isn't it? Are you offended, Brian? <laughs> piss is in the Bible. Isn't it? Are you? Does that bother you? Oh, no, they've recorded me saying way worse stuff. <laughs> this is nothing. Okay. Uh, but, but, you know, so, I mean, for a while, I could put up with my daughter doing that. But over time, it, gr- it, it grows wearisome. And God is very similar in that. And there was a time in which God grew weary with people's inability to follow the law. And so he sent his very son, Jesus Christ, to break the boundaries that held us in bondage. And he deserves the right to judge us. And and this passage plainly tells us that his wrath is extended to all those that are ungodly, ungodly and those who disrespect his words. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, so what else do we learn about God? We learn that God is not a respecter of persons. As the passage continues, uh, verse 19 says, because that which which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And without getting into this passage, you can go back and listen to that message. I don't say piss in that message, so it might, you be, it might be all right. But you, you can go back and listen to that message. But listen, listen. What we learned is that whether someone was a Gentile or a Jew, they were inexcusable. God wasn't a respecter of persons. It's not like he just extended himself to the Jew. He was faithful to reveal himself to everyone. Every kind of person from every kind of walk and every kind of background from generation upon generation, God has been faithful to reveal himself both to the mind of a person and to the heart of a person, both through his creation and through his word. He has been faithful to do that. And because of that, His wrath, His grace, His mercy, His justice is extended to every person. He is not a respecter of persons. And we also learn that God is not afraid to let people suffer the consequences of their wicked lifestyles. Didn't we? And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, 
without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. That's a long list. And you, you, you see yourself in that list. You were that type of person. Once upon a time before you knew Jesus Christ, you were that type of person. Now listen, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, God gives you the ability to sin. He, let, he lets you have a free will. He lets you decide who you want to be. He lets you move forward in whatever direction it is that you want to go. He gives you that ability. But he applies his judgment and his just, justice equally to everyone who chooses to disobey him. And he will let those things run their natural course. You want to be malicious? Fine. You want to choose fornication? Fine. You want, you want to speak in, in, in evil terms and you want to speak gossipy against other people? Fine. As that thing runs its course, the judgment of God, God will find you out. And that's what we learned. So we learned a lot about God. We learned about His holiness and His faithfulness and His love. But we also learned that He demands accountability in those that, that, that He is responsible for creating. He created you. Of course you're accountable to Him. My children are accountable to me. I made them. They belong to me. I own them. And they carry my name. And it's my responsibility as their quasi-maker to hold them accountable. And so we are accountable in our choices to follow Him or not. That's where we stand. And now we can start chapter 2. Are you ready? Verse 1. Therefore, thou art inexcusable. Okay, so let me, let me explain this to you. As the reader of this, we just got done looking at how God saw the Gentiles and what God does with people who are wicked in their pursuits. And they, and they grow to a place where they don't even regret their sin, right? Their mind grows reprobate. In other words, their mind grows hardened. And over time, the sin that they were convicted about, they're no longer convicted of those things. We just got in talking about really the most wicked type of person, a person who has absolutely no conviction or, or despair over their, who they are in their wickedness. And then we turn to the next chapter and it says, Therefore thou art inexcusable. That's like, that's like the reader is reading this piece of parchment and they're, and they're thinking about this other person, this other wicked person. Oh, the Gentiles, they were that way, right? And, 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 and so a Gentile could say, oh, once upon a time we were that way. That's not who we are anymore. Or if as a Jew you could read it and like the Jews were, were, are, this is speaking of the Gentile people. That's, that was never us, right? And you could get real high-minded real quick and then suddenly you read the next verse and it says, therefore thou art inexcusable. It's like the finger was being pointed over here and then suddenly it turns squarely on you. This passage has become personal very quickly. And as Christians, and dare I say as religious people, in other words, people that do things regularly in their faith, right? The word religion just means to do something in repetition. Okay? We are religious people. We are in danger of becoming hypocrites. That will always be a danger for us. We're going to talk about that this morning. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. Listen carefully. Here's the definition of a hypocrite. Whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou, 
that judges do us the same things. See, a hypocrite is a person that feels like other people's sins are worse than their own. A hypocrite, a hypocrite compares their lifestyle to the lifestyle of a drunk. Isn't that convenient? Now, I'm not a drunkard, right? Right? But as a hypocrite, I might consider the most vile people, the most wicked people, the people from the previous chapter, and say to myself, man, I'm, really, I'm doing real good. I'm making God love me so much. He just wants to cuddle with me all day because I'm so good. And what happens is we refuse to acknowledge the fact that we too are wicked. That we too struggle with sin. That we too have our own faults. Our own struggles. Now hypocrisy is a common, is a common thing among all religious people. Here's the thing is that like a, a lot of times we talk in terms of hypocrisy as though that's just how... We hear people talk about Christians all the time, don't we, as hypocrites, Right? Oh, I don't go to church. This is full of hypocrites, right? We hear things like that. You guys familiar with statements like that? And the thing that we neglect is that every person is a hypocrite. Whether you're a secularist or you're a Christian, you're a freaking hypocrite. Like we all do things that we shouldn't do. We all like to compare ourselves to other people and assume that we're doing well and that we're in a good place. But the truth is, we have our own problems. The stereotype of a Christian hypocrite is so common in the Western world. A person who says uh, they follow Jesus, but they're just as bad as anyone else. Christians, they're just as bad as anyone else. You know? Those Christians say they love Jesus, but look, they voted Trump into office and he is vile and disgusting. Right? Hypocrites. Right? You hear this conversation, it's like, <laughs> it's framed in so many different ways, right? But we hear it all the time. But we're all hypocrites. We all have double standards. Hypocrites are everywhere. And Christian hypocrisy is just an excuse for people to not be invested in a local church. Did you know that? At the end of the day, it's just an excuse to not have to buy into Jesus. I mean, I've known growing up, I had a, a lot of friends that I went to high school with or to college with who called themselves Christians, but over time they grew tired of the hypocrisy and they left the church. Does, does anybody else have friends like that? They left the church, they went away, and, and they say things like, well, I don't believe in organized religion. Have you heard that, right? I don't believe in organized religion. Or, or the, the, the local church let me down, or the church let me down, and so I don't go to church anymore because it's full of hypocrites. You know, James Fife once said... Uh, I have a few James 5 quotes. I'm entitled to bust those out every once in a while. But he said that saying you don't want to go to church because there's hypocrites there is like saying I don't want to go to the gym because there's overweight people there. Right? Like, that's so practical. I don't want to go to the gym because there's fat people there. Well, where else should they be? Where do you want them to be? They should be at McDonald's where they belong. What is it? Right? The same, thing is, the same thing is true in the church. Where do you want the hypocrites to be? I want the hypocrites here. So they can grow less hypocritical. So they can grow to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we want? So we can't buy that lie. 
We can't buy into that. Hypocrisy is everywhere, but, but, but the reason that Christian hypocrisy standard exists is because, you know, all stereotypes, they have some root in some form of truth, right? Whether it's bent or twisted or whatever. The truth is Christians should be held to a higher standard. And the truth is that Christians, when they fail to live and, and act like Jesus Christ, it does give people an excuse not to follow Jesus. That's biblical. And that's why God tells us we should be blameless. Christians should be held to a higher standard. And when they fall short, it impacts the lost world and, and, has, and has great uh, resonance. in your. When you sin and you fail and you fall short, it has resonance amongst the people that you know that don't follow Jesus Christ. It does. That doesn't mean we should beat you up, but it means that you should grow. And we should grow less hypocritical in our actions. But hypocrisy is everywhere, and we all find ourselves being hypocritical sometimes. And this is why it is so dangerous for us to be religious. A religious person perceives that their actions gain them favor with God. And many of us have fallen into that before, that the things that you do either put you in a better standing with God or they don't. You know, we've all had that way of thinking. In fact, that's exactly what Melissa was talking about up here, the thing that keeps you from going all in with God, because a lot of times we feel like, well, um, we've got things under control. We've got things figured out. It's our responsibility to be religious and to, and to look spiritual and to act a certain way, and so we've got to figure that out. And I'm going to earn my way into a relationship with God. I'm going, to, I'm going to make it so that in my own power, I can find myself in a place where I can earn God's favor. And it's a jacked up way of thinking. And all of us fall into that all the time. We fall into it. We have to check ourselves. And the problem with this is that over time, we delude ourselves into thinking that we are personally becoming better than other people. That, that we, over time... We, we begin to think that because we do this religious stuff and we minister to people and we have all these things that we're involved in, that over time we are becoming better, not for the sake of growing into to Christ, but be, we're getting better than other people. Right? You've thought that way. You have thought that way. And so here's my warning. I say, woe to the believer who casts judgment on a person because they do not meet the standard that you have built in your mind. In your mind. And I say, woe to the Christians who compare themselves among themselves. You are inviting the wrath of God who sees and judges all things and he will expose your variance. He will expose you. He's going to expose your hypocrisy. You don't get, a, get to get away with being a hypocrite. Look at verse 1 for a second again, and, we'll, and, and we're almost moving on. Just, just a second. Verse 1 says, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against, against them which commit such things. God's judgment is coming. Christian, God will expose you and your heart, and your heart will hurt in light of your hypocrisy. 
And perhaps the greatest example of, the, of God doing this is in the example of David in 2 Samuel. Okay, you guys are familiar with this story, so let me frame it real quick. David's kicking it on a rooftop. He's chilling in his kingdom. He's having a good time. Life is good. He's in God's blessing. There's a war going on. Okay, battles are raging outside of the walls. Okay, David's at home, and he looks down on a rooftop. And he sees a woman, and she's fine, and she's bathing. And so he says to himself, I want her. Okay, she's married. She's married to someone named Uriah. Jack, dude, does this, does this story, like, particularly peeve you? Do you get all riled up? I really feel connected to it. Any reason? I think you have a reason. Okay, so don't get too riled up, all right? Um, your namesake dies. In this story. Okay, so, so, so he invites this woman, David, while her husband is away in battle, invites this woman into his house, and he has sex with her. That's called fornication, right? And in doing so, uh, he plots and schemes and decides that he wants this woman to himself, and so he sets Uriah up uh, to die in battle, Okay? Uriah gets killed in battle. Okay? And, um, and then this woman gets pregnant, and then David finds himself, you know, who knows where David's mind is at this point. I mean, he's got what he wanted. He's got the girl. Things seem to have worked out in his favor. But, 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 but God sends a prophet. And we can re- uh, read about this in chapter 12. So if you're there or you want to follow along on the screen, let's read through this story a little bit. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There are two men in one city. Okay, so he's about to tell him a story. Okay, and, and he leads David to believe that this is something that's actually happened. All right? Okay, so there, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one ewe lamb, like a little baby lamb which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. And it did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. This man cherished this little lamb, cherished it. It lived in their house. It slept with them. He fed it from his own table. He loved this lamb. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. In other words, the rich man has a visitor, and instead of killing one of his own lamb... Right, one of his own flock to make food for the, for the visitor, what's he do? He, he goes to this other guy. He took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for the man that was come to him. He killed this lamb that this other man loved so greatly. And, and David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had had no pity. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. I'm trying not to cry right now, actually. I'm not just angry. This hurts. This hurts me to read this. I mean, this is a gut punch. And David is forced to face his own hypocrisy. And everything that he was blind to before, God was faithful to expose him. You don't get to get away with being a hypocrite. 
When David hears the story, he is, he's quick to condemn the perpetrator. Yet when he finds out that this perpetrator is him, his heart is broken. And his own heart has condemned him. Here's our first principle for the morning. You taking notes? Avero, I have a notebook for you. Oh, you already have one? Good boy. <laughs> Does anyone need a notebook today to start taking notes? I'm going to get you a notebook. Okay. After service. Um, let, me, let me finish up. Oh, okay, you have one. All right, all right. Principle number one. The only standard worth holding uh, ourselves to is that of Christ. That's the only standard worth holding, worth holding ourselves to. Any false comparison will only lead to disunity, vain thoughts, wandering, disappointment, and God's reproving hand. If we make a lifestyle of judging other people, we will only end up in a lifestyle of disappointment and letdown. We will only ever just wander away from God. Do you understand that? We'll only ever just make an excuse to not follow God in the end. Because com- uh, comparing yourself to other people, it grows wearisome, even for the most religious person. It grows tiring, and eventually you will disengage. And for some means that go, it means you're going to go off and sin somewhere, or you're going to just sit in the back pew and you're going to disengage. It leads to not- the only one worth comparing ourselves to is Jesus Christ. And this is what Sam talked about this morning. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you. You, Christian, let this mind be in you. The one that was in Jesus, the mind, the brain, the way he thought, his cognition, we want that. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. In other words, the mind of Christ looks like this. You're a slave. You're a servant. You're submitted. Even to those that that deserve your condemnation, you serve. Even to to, to those who are wicked in this world, you humble yourself. You put them before you. The sinner and the publican and the ones that the, the disciples didn't think were worthy of Christ going into their home to eat and to break bread with. Remember that? And Christ said, these are the ones that I came for. You pious religious hypocrites. These are the ones that I came for. This was the mind of Christ. And so this should be our mind. And he is the only one worth comparing ourselves to. Because we can get somewhere when we compare ourselves to Christ. We can get somewhere. We need to be like him. So that's what hypocrites feel. Let's talk about what hypocrites find. What is it that hypocrites find? You're doing good. Verse 3, And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, thou, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? The, the hypocrite must come and in, in, in face the fact that their hypocrisy is going to find them out. And it won't just find them out. They will be judged for it. Now this story, Luke 18, 9. Did you get this? Is everybody cool with that? We're going to go here. Okay, we've got to keep moving. Luke 18, 9. Jesus tells a parable. And it goes like this. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And dis- Okay, so he's talking to the Pharisees. And there are a group of people that trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they had it figured out. They were pious, religious people. And they were hypocrites. Okay? And, and, and they despised other people. In verse 10, 
Two men, this is the parable, this is the story, two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. Okay, so one is a Pharisee, one is a religious person. The other one is a publican, they're a sinner, they're wicked. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as as other men are, extortioners and unjust, unjust adulterers or even as this publican. I fast uh, twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. This man's bragging before the living God. How quickly we forget what we were saved from. How quickly we forget that we we were these people. That we sinned against the living God. And in this story, there's another man and the publican standing afar off would not lift up. The guy couldn't even bring himself to lift his eyes up in the temple. And he prayed so fervently that he beat, he smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You know, even David received his judgment. And his hypocrisy, you know, the end of the, that story in, in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12 is that David suffers, even though he recognizes his hypocrisy, even though he repents, he still suffers the loss of his child. And he loses his kingdom to battle the rest of his life. The rest of his days, he is plagued with battle. And his, 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 uh, the nation that he rules over is in unrest the rest of his rulership. Those were the consequences. Those were the judgments that he faced because he sinned. And beyond that, he was justified in doing so. He didn't even see his own wickedness. Principle number two. While we all struggle with being hypocrites, don't we? I mean, I'm I'm the first to admit it. And the people that see me every day probably recognize it. I am a hypocrite. And because of that, I need to recognize that I need to invite Christian accountability into my life. And in doing so, I avert the judgment of God. So you can either let people come into your life and judge you and assess you and critique you and help you find your way to Jesus Christ and having the mind of Christ. Let them sharpen you the way that brothers and sisters do in Christ. Opening the word, looking at Christ's face, saying, hey, we don't measure up to this. Let's live for God. Let's figure out what it means to submit ourselves to him. You can either choose that path or you can choose the path of judgment. You only get one. You don't... One prevents the other. Do you understand? So if we choose to be accountable, if we choose to be in Bible study, if we choose a directions relationship, if we choose to be in ministry, if we choose to expose ourselves to other Christians who are also in pursuit of Jesus, we avert his judgment. We avoid being hypocrites. We become humble in his sight. Verse 4. What hypocrites forget what hypocrites forget? 
Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Now here's the deal. Who hates riches? Does anybody hate riches? I would think anybody would say, yeah, I hate riches. Who hates goodness? Who hates forbearance? See, the, the answer would apparently be, no, would be nobody. No one hates those things. I mean, when someone treats you with kindness, do you revile it? Do you hate it? When someone treats you good and, and takes care of you, you know? When, Ka when Katie's braiding your hair. Katie's braiding my hair. Oh. She sits on your lap, which we should address. That's, we'll save that for another message. You guys love each other and you take care of each other. She's like, you guys are like two, like, I don't know, two panda bears. or what Animals that take care of each other. No, monkeys do that, don't they? They pick at each other and they like groom each other all day. That's loving. Yeah? But people love that. They love to be cherished. They love to be taken care of. Who hates that? No one hates that. I mean, this week at the hospital, uh, Shepard, there was one, a, a couple times where he just started petting my hair. Yeah? It's sweet, isn't it? It's, it was, it was, I, I loved it. You know? Everybody likes to be treated with kindness. No one reviles that. What person who is treated with patience snaps back in resentment? Who does that? I mean, certainly no one despises a person who dies for them. Await. Await. We do that every day, don't we? So, so hypocrites... Because of their pride, keep God's love and riches at a distance because his very love exposes their falsity. His very love in our lives and his riches and his goodness, they expose everything that's wrong with us. And as religious and hypocritical people, we keep him at arm's distance because we don't want anyone to expose the fact that we are really just one foot in and one foot out and we're hardly making it and our lives are, 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 are full of, of vile and wicked things and we struggle to be in his presence so we keep him at a distance because it prevents us from being broken down. And we retain control. And this makes the hypocrite as every bit as wicked as the reprobate. Romans chapter 1 verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. That's the reprobate. They weren't thankful. But became vain in their imaginations and the foolish heart, their foolish heart was darkened. See, pride hinders relationship with Christ. And the Gentiles and the Jews alike, both of them, they hung Jesus Christ on a cross. And they conspired against their creator because they despised his gift. And every day when faced with the prospect of salvation, people cringe at what they might have to lose in order to gain Christ. Every day people in this world revile Jesus Christ and what he did for them because they recognize if they choose to follow him, they have to give everything up. They don't get to hold on to anything. That they've got to jump in with both feet. And this makes the hypocrite as every bit as awful as, the, as that reprobate. Every bit. Because they hold back. The hypocrite is more concerned with the need to look holy than to be holy. And that's sometimes us. So principle number three. A repentant person is, a repentant person is willfully thankful. And a thankful person is always willing to repent. Okay, so let me break that down. A repentant person, someone who is repentant before God, who is submitted, and they want him to control their lives, and they give up on them, 
This person is always a thankful person. This is a person who's grateful for who God is to them. They love and they adore the fact that he is there for them and that he's extended himself and they live a life of thankfulness. And listen, a thankful person is always willing to repent. Now let me make this really practical. Some of you guys, uh, I would say, are thankful for Christ. But here's the thing I want to call into question real quick is why is our invitation ministry so weak? Why are you guys so afraid to repent? Why is it on a Sunday? Were you perfect all week or something? Did you not sin? Like when you get to Sunday morning and the invitation comes, is there not anything to pray about? What is the matter with us that we hold back so much? Do we not want to be seen? Do we not want to be that publican beating our chest and calling on God's mercy? Are we afraid of that? How thankful are you? You know how much, you know, you know how I can measure our thankfulness is our willingness to repent when we mess up. When we've messed up, our repentance exposed just how thankful we are for who Jesus Christ is. We need to be thankful. The last thing, and this will be it. What hypocrites face. Verse 5, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Now I don't have time to break this down and I don't have time to look at this more carefully because this speaks about how God measures the deeds of both the unbeliever and the believer, both. Okay, this isn't a passage about working your way to heaven. We'll look at this more closely next week, but listen to me. This passage is about judgment and it is about the fact that the hypocrite will be measured and they will be weighed and their deeds will be looked at. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things uh, done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Christian, you are going to stand in front of Jesus Christ one day, whether it's the day that you die or the day that you're lifted up into heaven. Listen to me. One day you're going to stand in front of Jesus Christ and your deeds will be measured. Romans 14, 10 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's our context. That's our context. It's come full circle. How could you possibly cast judgment on another brother and sister in Christ and point your finger and compare yourself to them? Knowing that all of us alike will stand before Jesus Christ one day and we will answer and take account, you as well as them. Do not stand haughty. Do not stand stand proud. Humble yourself now. Take on the mind of Christ. And so in conclusion, last week we concluded by addressing the need to, to pray for those friends in our lives who are in danger of seeing the truth of God, right? Seeing who Christ is and yet refusing it. And even and, and I personally prayed for someone in my life who's in danger of a reprobate mind. Their wickedness has grown so great that they're in danger of losing themselves in that wickedness and to sever their mind against God. And that's who we prayed for. And many of you prayed. Now this week, the invitation's a little bit different. We need to address the other person in danger of impenitence, us. Every, Christians, every Christian at times has and will be susceptible to hypocritical thinking. And even a hypocritical lifestyle. This morning, God is calling us to address the way we see other people. 
The invitation is to address in prayer how we compare ourselves to other people. And in doing so, you know we're either going to exalt ourselves over other people, or we're going we're to scorn ourselves, and we're going to not measure up. Like, whenever you compare yourself with other people, doesn't it only just end in you either becoming proud or you becoming just hateful of your own self? When Christ has called you to love and he's made you his child and heir and you despise yourself because you don't compare to to the way that Connor or Haley or Uriah live. And they're so much further along in their walk. And I'm I'm just so awful. Comparing yourself gets you nowhere. And it's time this morning for us in prayer, in our invitation, to address in what ways we have wrongfully compared ourselves to others. That's what we're going to do. And so the worship team is going to come up and we're going to close in worship. But do not waste this time. All of us are guilty of being a hypocrite. And maybe even this last week, you've compared yourself to other people's wrongfully. Have you caught yourself comparing yourself? Have you coveted something that other people have? Have you despised other brothers or sisters because of their weaknesses? Let's all consider the judgment seat of Christ this morning, please. When we all stand before God, there will, be, there will be no proud people in the presence of God. You understand? So why not live like we're in the presence of God now? Because aren't we? Don't we actually stand before Him even right now? Isn't He with us? So let's live and breathe and practice humility. Because we are no better than any other person. And we have to learn to believe that. And that needs to be our prayer this morning in our invitation. I love you. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the power of Romans. Just everything that I read can be preached with such fervor. And that, Lord, that's great because that makes preaching fun for me. But Lord, the truth is I need to measure myself against what you're saying here. Do I cast judgment? Do I wrongfully judge other people? Do I hold myself in pride? God, forgive me. Forgive me of of how I don't measure up to your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that I would this morning judge myself, lest I be judged. I ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.